Go ahead and take out your Bibles with me, if you would, to the book of Romans, in chapter 8, and the first verse. I am continuing to pray that God will use our study of Romans 8 to bring about real revival to our church and to our community. Let me ask you this. What do you think that would look like? What does it look like in a church when God is granting an unusual abundance of His blessings? What does a church look like when God is working with an extraordinary measure of His power? One example is what happened in the uh, Welch town of Aberavon uh, during the early years of Martin Lloyd-Jones ministry. I've so enjoyed reading about him over the, this summer and so many of my illustrations have been coming from him. Uh, but while he was in that town of Aberavon, something rare took place at the church where he was ministering. And it's, it's very much the kind of thing that I long for for Mount Hermon. It's very similar to the kinds of prayers that I pray for for our church and that I know many of you pray as well. Something began to happen. There was a new fervency in prayer and praise. For so many years before, the, the Monday night prayer meeting of that church had been poorly attended. And then, for no explainable reason, many in the church began to take Part. In fact, the Monday night prayer meeting couldn't even be kept under two hours because there were so many who wanted to pray. At one meeting, there were 44 different people who wanted to lead in prayer and still more to go when Dr. Lloyd-Jones ended the prayer meeting because it was 10 o'clock and he said the people needed their rest. On one occasion, this was a, a Friday night meeting, uh, Lloyd-Jones was asked, What is a Christian? And Lloyd-Jones responded and, and said, well, to answer that question, what is a Christian would, would take tonight and the next day and the, the day after that? And, and then all of a sudden, a lady in the congregation, who was never known to speak boldly like this at all, suddenly stood up and declared, a Christian, doctor, is the heir of salvation, the purchase of God, the born of His Spirit, the washed in His blood. And from that, Lloyd-Jones asked others if they would want to stand and tell what it means to them to be a Christian. And that meeting, which was meant to be more like a Sunday school class, turned into a spontaneous prayer and praise meeting to God. And this is what happens in, in true revival. There is a new earnestness. There's a new desire in the hearts of God's people to pray and to, to talk about His glories. There was also suddenly a new love for Christ's church among the people. There was a new desire to be in His house and to hear God's Word. Uh, Ian Murray writes this. He says, One of the clearest memories of church member E.T. Rees from those days was of the eagerness with which the congregation gathered. On a Sunday evening, the building would start to fill as much as an hour before the 6.30 service, and sometimes there was not a seat remaining by 6 o'clock. 
The Monday prayer meeting, the Wednesday lecture meeting had to be moved to the sanctuary on account of the numbers attending. Shopkeepers would arrive straight from their business without taking time to eat an evening meal. Night shift workers, due to report to work at 8.30 p.m., would come in their working clothes and prefer to miss only the last part of the service rather than to miss the whole. And so you had this element of prayer and you had this element of love for the church. And then along with these, God began to give conversions. Murray says that what was happening at this church required neither publicity nor organization to carry the news of it to others. The word began to spread in all manner of ways. Women would speak over their shopping about how their husbands now preferred prayer meeting to the cinema. At school one afternoon, a teacher was told by a boy in her class, We had a dinner today, miss. We had gravy and potatoes, meat and cabbage and rice pudding. And this family had rarely had such a meal at home. The reason being that this boy's father had been converted and the money he had formerly spent on drink was now coming home for his wife and children. There was a neighbor, a, a well-known spirit medium in Aberavon, and she abandoned the only livelihood she had ever known, that of telling people their fortunes and leading these spiritist meetings. She abandoned it because she came to know the gospel. Uh, every Sunday evening, she had been paid three guineas, quite a large sum in those days, to lead these meetings. And then one Sunday, when she was sick and unable to lead her normal meeting, her attention was attracted to the numbers of people that were passing her house to go to the church. And the very sight of these people and their evident anticipation awakened a desire in her. She wanted to see where are these people going. And so she left her house and followed them. And that night God saved her soul. And so Mount Hermon, here are three graces that only God can bring to a church. And these are the graces that I am praying for as we study Romans 8 together. I am praying that He will give us a heart for greater earnestness in prayer, a greater love for prayer, a greater desire to call upon Him. I'm praying for a new love for the local church, new commitment to the local church, a new desire to hear the Word of God. And then most of all, I am praying for the salvation of souls. And so I ask as we continue now going through Romans 8, that this be your prayer as well, that we pray that God would do something like this here at Mount Hermon. Now let's read our verse once more, Romans 8, 1. Um, we won't spend this much time on every verse in Romans 8, uh, but Romans 8, 1 is particularly precious, and everything else that we're going to read in Romans 8 comes out of this verse, and there's so much to say about Romans 8, 1, that that's why we're spending one more Lord's Day today on this verse. Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're studying this verse in four parts. We already looked first at the two words that are the heart of the verse, no condemnation. And we've also looked at the last part of the verse, for those who are in Christ Jesus. This morning, I want us to look at 
a part that is quite important. But it's only one word, but I think you'll see in a minute that it is a very important word. It's the word now. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now you can hear it, can't you? You can hear it. Paul is is saying something. This word now implies something, and what it implies is something very big. It implies there was a time when you as a Christian, or before you were a Christian, you were under condemnation. Now... You are not under condemnation. So, so something has happened. This now implies some kind of event that has occurred. You were once under condemnation. You were once on your way to hell. Now you are not. And so my whole message this morning is for us to ask the question, what is this now referring to? What is this event that takes people from condemnation to no condemnation. One answer might at first seem to jump out at us. And yet when you think about it for another moment, you realize it can't be the right answer. The answer that might at first jump out at us is this. Jesus has come. Jesus has come. He, he came. He lived. He died on the cross for our sins. And now, because Jesus has come, there is no condemnation for us. Now, don't misunderstand me. It is absolutely true that if Jesus had not come and died on the cross, we would still be under condemnation. It is only through Jesus that condemnation is taken away. It is only because Jesus came and lived and died on the cross that you and I can be right with God. But that being said, the now in Romans 8.1 cannot refer to the coming of Jesus. Why? I'm going to give you three reasons. Number one, we were not justified at the cross. We were not justified at the cross. Romans 8.1 is all about justification. That is, my sins have been forgiven. I have been declared right in the sight of God. This is justification. But it was not at the cross that I was justified. At the cross, the work was done, which certainly makes justification possible. But there is a difference between redemption accomplished and redemption applied. At the cross, Jesus accomplished our redemption, but it wasn't applied then. What Christ did at the cross had no bearing on my life until it was applied to me. Now, yes, every single person for whom Jesus died and paid their sin debt, every single one of them will be justified. God will never punish the same sin twice. He he did not punish any sin on the cross that He will then punish again in hell. So every person for whom Christ died will be justified and their sins will be forgiven. But this verse is not about the accomplishment of redemption. 
that we're going to get to that in the next verses. This verse is about the application of redemption. It's about me being able to say what Christ did 2,000 years ago has been applied to me so that now there's no condemnation for me. My second reason for saying that this now doesn't refer to the coming of Christ is this. That would imply that those who believed before the cross were not saved. That is, Abraham, Moses, David. These people believed the promises of God. These people looked forward to the coming Messiah. But according to the misinterpretation I'm addressing, until Jesus came, they were not saved. In other words, according to this wrong interpretation, if you say the now means Jesus came, then those who believed before Jesus came were condemned. And it wasn't until after Jesus came, now they are not condemned. And that cannot be true. Because the Bible explicitly tells us, for example, that Abraham, long before the cross, believed and was justified. Abraham believed and was counted right in the sight of God. That happened during his lifetime. Now, absolutely, it was because of what Jesus was going to do that Abraham could be justified. The cross that was coming was the grounds of Abraham's justification. So that's absolutely true. But Abraham was justified in time, in space, in history, in his lifetime before the cross. So if you read Romans 8.1 and you read the word now as referring to the coming of Christ, it denies what we know is true from the Old Testament, which is that people believed and entered no condemnation even before Christ came. And then my third argument is this. Paul explains what he has in mind when he uses the word now in verse 2. In the next verse. And the next verse is not about the glorious event of Christ making atonement for our sins at the cross. That's coming, but that's not what verse 2 was about. The next verse is about something that happens in our lifetime. An experience of our souls. Understand the argument here. There was a time in our lives, dear Christian, there was a time in your life, there was a time in my life when I was still under condemnation. You were still under condemnation. Something happened in our lifetime. So that I can say now, I am no longer under condemnation. Verse 2, as we see, bears out what that, that was. So what is this great change? What is this thing that happened in our lifetimes that put us into no condemnation? Well, we saw it last night. I mean, last Sunday night. Not last night. Last Sunday night. The great change that occurred was that we are now in Christ and we used to be in Adam. We used to be a part of the human race guilty before God because of Adam's sin and because of our sin. 
But we have now been transferred from one legal reality to the other. We are now in Christ who accomplished righteousness for us. Jesus is our head. We are one with Him. His righteousness is imputed to us, accounted to us. We used to be in Adam, guilty before God. Now we're in Christ, blameless before God. That's what happened. But how did that happen? <laughs> That's not the deeper issue. How, how, how did that happen? How did we go from being in Adam to in Christ so that we can say now, no condemnation? Well, the answer we saw last Sunday was we believed. We had faith. And faith is the key. God gave His only begotten Son that whosoever, what? Believes shall have everlasting life. And so faith is the key. It is the moment that you and I turn from our sins and throw ourselves in complete trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the moment we are transferred from in Adam to in Christ. And we become a Christian with no condemnation. But now addresses the deeper question. How did that happen? How did we come to believe? If the great difference between condemnation and no condemnation... If the great difference between hell and heaven is that we came to believe, how did that happen? Especially when we look around us at the billions of people in this world for whom this has not happened. The now of verse 1 does not apply to them. They haven't believed. You and I live every day around thousands of people who are still in Adam. They are not in Christ. And certainly, if we love these people, we want to do everything we can to help them believe. We, we want them to experience the now event. We, we want them to experience the transfer from Adam to Christ, from condemnation to, to no condemnation. We, we want them to believe. So what can we do? How does this happen how does a person go from not believing to believing? Because that's what the now refers to. Well, two wrong answers and then the right answer. The first wrong answer of how you came to faith is this. You did it. That answer is completely wrong. Of all the billions of people in this world... You are one of the small minority that has faith in Jesus Christ. What made the difference? And are you really going to say that what made the difference is you? Were you smarter than the millions of other people who have heard the gospel and chose not to believe? Were you wiser than the millions of people who have heard the gospel and chosen not to believe. Are you going to say, here's how I went from in Adam to in Christ. Here's how I went from condemnation to no condemnation. Here's the now that happened. I chose to believe. Friends, let's be very clear because the Bible is very clear on this. 
If believing on Jesus Christ was left up to us in our natural state, not one of us would have ever believed. The Bible says, what? That we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, listen to this as if you've never heard it before. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Is there anything in those verses that gives any impression that we could choose to truly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. What does that even mean? You were dead. Doesn't mean you were physically dead, of course. We were walking around just fine. Before we were Christians, we walked around living like normal people. We got out of bed in the morning. We ate our cereal. We brushed our teeth. We, we lived our lives. And yet Paul says you were dead. So what kind of deadness was this? It was spiritual deadness. It was deadness to God. You and I used to be so ensnared by our sins, by our pride and self-centeredness, by our worldliness and fleshly desires, that God was a threat to everything we loved. We did not love God, not the holy, holy, holy God of the Bible, not the God with all of His commands and His claim on our lives. We hated this God. We wanted nothing to do with this God. A person in this state does not simply choose to believe. Paul says we were following the course of this world. Let me ask you a question. Is the course of this world running towards faith in Christ? When you look at our culture and our society, the course that our culture is going in, is it running towards Christ? Is that where our culture is heading? Or would you not say that if we're honest and objective and we look at our society and our culture... It's running as far away from Christ as it can. And so Paul says we used to be following the course of this world. Does that mean we were running to Christ? No, just the opposite. We were running the opposite way. Or what about the devil? He says we were following the, the course of the prince of the power of the air. We were following the devil. Folks, is the devil running towards faith in Christ? Is that the direction the devil's going? No. But the complete opposite. And that's where we were. We were following the devil. We were, we were going the opposite direction. Friends, the Bible makes it clear that a person in and of themselves can no more truly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ than we can sprout wings and fly to Neptune. You do that, you can believe on Christ of your own will. It is an impossibility. It is a moral impossibility for any human being apart from the Spirit of God to believe. We are so darkened in our understandings, in our will, we just confessed it. 
in our confession of faith, our hearts are utterly devoid of that righteousness which we must have before God. And so the first wrong answer to how the now of Romans 8.1 came about is this, I did it. That's completely wrong. But there's a second wrong answer to how the now of Romans 8.1 came about. And it's this. It sounds a little better. I did it with the Spirit's help. Here we find the view of many poorly taught Christians in our day. The view says, I could never have believed on Jesus on my own, but the Spirit helped me and I did it. That is, He did part of the work and I did the other part. Maybe, maybe I did 50% and the Spirit did 50%. Or maybe the Spirit did 90% and I did 10%. But the point is, it was me and the Holy Spirit working together that created faith in my heart so that I believed and can now say no condemnation. This is a view of salvation called synergism. Everybody say synergism. Say it one more time. Synergism. Companies today talk a lot about synergy. It's become kind of a hip word. Companies, they they want synergy. Multiple people collaborating together. Multiple people working together, putting their minds together to make things happen. And the synergistic view of salvation says that God did part of it and you did part of it. And together you came up with faith so that you believed on Christ. You were taken from in Adam to in Christ, from condemnation to no condemnation. It's a partnership. You and God partnered together so that you would believe. Christian, what exactly, what, what percentage exactly of work can a dead person do? What percentage of work can you do if you are dead in your sins? If you do any part of this work of creating faith in Christ Jesus in your heart, then to that degree you get to share in the glory. You'll say, well, 50% of the glory of my salvation goes to God, but 50% goes to me. Or even 99% of the glory of my salvation goes to God. He did almost all of it. But I still get 1%. Do you think God shares His glory in that way? Does God allow there to be any glory at all that does not originate with Him? In heaven, you and I will have glory but it will be God's glory in us. To say that you played some part in creating saving faith in your own heart is to say that there is a glory that is not God's at all. It is rightfully your glory originating with you. And that is dangerous talk. And the reason this is dangerous talk is because our God is the God who says this in Isaiah concerning the salvation of His people. Speaking of their salvation, He says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. How should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. In other words, God says, here's the reason I save people, to show my glory. 
Which means any view of salvation that takes glory away from God is undermining the ultimate purpose for which God saves people. I wonder, when Paul was traveling that road to Damascus, and he was intent on capturing and imprisoning followers of Christ, he was ready to put Christians in jail. What percentage do you think Paul contributed to his conversion? This was not a man that was cooperating with the Holy Spirit. This is not a man who was working with the Holy Spirit for his salvation. Just the opposite. This was Paul dead set on arresting Christians, putting them in prison. The Holy Spirit came upon him. The Holy Spirit did 100% of the work. Jesus Christ spoke from heaven and he was saved. Christ told him, it is hard to kick against the goads, meaning, Paul, you're resisting this, but I'm more powerful than you. (laughs) You can fight against you being saved, Paul, but you will be mine. I am going to conquer your heart. When, When we talk about irresistible grace, we don't mean that you can't resist the Holy Spirit. We just mean that if Christ is determined to save you, You won't resist for so long. He will win. (laughs) He will win. And you will be His. Christ does not stand at the door of your heart like a beggar saying, please, oh please, oh please, I want to save you, but I can't save you without your help. Please do this for me. That is not the way Jesus saves. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth given unto him so that when he decides that he wants to save someone, he says, Spirit, go, and the Spirit gives faith. What is the right answer? Mount Hermon, we must never be synergists. We are monergists. Mon, M-O-N, meaning one. One person does the work. Our conversion is the work of one, and that one was not me, and it was not you. The one who did the work was the Spirit of God. This is how Paul explains the word now in verse 2, Romans 8, 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. If that verse is a mystery to you, next week we're going to unpack it. Okay, But here's what I want you to see right now. It was the Spirit of life that did it. It was the Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus told Nicodemus, if you want to inherit the kingdom of God, you must be born again. How do I do that, Jesus? What must I do to be born again? Well, it's a work of the Spirit. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Friends, hear is the great event which occurred in your lifetime if you're a Christian. An event that was the most important event of your life. More important than your marriage if you're married. More important than having a baby if you had a baby. This was the most important event in your lifetime. The Holy Spirit came upon you and He regenerated you. He gave you new life He gave you eyes to see and ears to hear. And for the first time, you believed. This is not something you designed. 
And this is not something you orchestrated. This is not something you had any control over. When the God who reigns over all decided that now was the time to make you His own, Christ Jesus sent His Spirit and you had new life. Some people can tell you the very moment it happened. (laughs) Some people can remember, they can just say, it was 6.33 on Monday, July the 6th of 19. And they can tell you, that's, it just, boom, that's, that's the Spirit came into my life. Other people, we say it was sometime between age 6 and 16. I'm not sure where. Somewhere in there. We don't know. Because the Spirit is mysterious. And, and, and you may be one of, one of either one of those groups. C.S. Lewis. We had Narnia camp a week or two ago. And I was sharing this with the teenagers. C.S. Lewis was riding in the sidecar of his brother's motorcycle on the way to the zoo. And he says, all I know is this. He had been thinking about the gospel. He had been wrestling with, could Christ really be God? He had been wrestling with these things in his head. And he said, all I know is this. When I got into my brother's sidecar of the motorcycle and we left for the zoo, I didn't believe. And when I got out of that sidecar at the zoo, I believed. <laughs> right? That was his testimony. He said, I, I can't explain it. I don't know. All, all I know is when I got in, I didn't. When I got out, I believed. John Newton traced his experience back to a terrible thunderstorm, right? Thunderstorm in a ship. He was on a slave ship, and the thunderstorm had come upon it, and he was getting ready to climb a ladder up to the, uh, the deck of the ship, and somebody in a hurry brushed past him up the ladder, and as soon as that person got up to the deck of the ship, a wave came and washed that man overboard, and he was drowned. And John Newton thought for a moment, he thought, that could be me. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God came upon him, and wrestling with questions of salvation. And and he had been taught by his mother from an early age the gospel. And he came to believe. Ephesians 2.8 is clear. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Church, follow the great chain of salvation. We could go further back on the chain of salvation. We could go further ahead on the chain of salvation. But just in Romans 8.1, I think we have this. The Spirit of God comes upon you so that you are born again. The result is that you believe. And when you believe, you are taken from in Adam to in Christ Jesus. And therefore, no condemnation. You are justified. Yes, You believed. But something came before. The Spirit of God came upon you. What is the great implication of this? Well, you know the great implication of this. To God be the glory for all of it. That's the great implication. And by the way, that is the tone of verse 1. In fact, this is the tone, really, of the whole chapter, and especially verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. When we're studying Romans 8, 1, Romans 8, 2, Romans 8, 3, Romans 8, 4, do not read this as if these are dry statements in an essay that Paul is writing. Do not read these four verses as if Paul was making cold, emotionless propositions. Just the opposite. Paul is worshiping here. We're going to see that tonight. He was just at the end of Romans 7, and it was kind of sad, right? He was telling the truth about the Christian life, which is that it's hard. 
There's this battle with sin that happens. In fact, he cries out, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? That's that's where Romans 7 ends. And then, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. And he comes into Romans 8.1, For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. These verses are Paul worshiping. These verses are Paul thrilled at the truth of no condemnation. And Paul is rejoicing and he says, it is God that has done it. To God be all the glory and the honor and the praise. He's going to break out by the time, you know, we're doing this one verse at a time. This was, this was one, one book and we're going to get to Romans eleven thirty six, where Paul just suddenly can't control himself anymore and he just breaks out in a doxology of praise to God. All oh, the depths of the wisdom of God, right? Uh, incredible thing. So I leave you with this. Can you say this morning what you could not say earlier in your life? Can you say, now, there is no condemnation for me. I am a new creation in Christ. Can you say that? I pray that you can. And if you can't, I would urge you to go to God in prayer and to plead with Him to give you this new birth. Plead with God to grant you the gift of saving faith so that you will go from in Adam to in Christ and you'll be able to say there is therefore now no condemnation for me. And if you are a Christian, are you not thankful? Do you not rejoice that God has looked upon you and though none of us deserve it, He has saved us. Rest in that. Find your confidence for Monday morning in that. I am a Christian. I didn't do it. God did it. I am a Christian. And whatever might happen today, heaven is my home and God is my Father. No hell for me. Only heaven. Followed by heaven. Followed by more heaven. Followed by more heaven. Forever and ever. Let's pray.